Good afternoon, my name is Red Savillo. I'm the director of New Life CDC, the New Life Community Development Corporation, whose mission, thank you, whose mission is to be able to come alongside the poor in this neighborhood. Um, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. One of the ushers can hand you one. We're in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse, starting in verse 12. And also, by the way, just before I get into this, um, there's a meeting today after the third service, the meeting that everybody's been waiting for. Does anybody know what that meeting is? The finance meeting. Woo! No? Okay. Well, um, at the finance meeting, all the books are open, and, and so um, feel free to ask any questions that you want. You'll see where every single dollar goes. And there will be air conditioning, okay? So it's going to be upstairs in the mezzanine conference room um, right after this service. So I'm going to be closing the, the series. We've been on a series, The Risen Way of the Kingdom of God. And even though I'm going to be closing the series today, there's actually going to be a bonus feature uh, next week. You know, sometimes you watch a movie and the credits roll down and, or roll up and then you hang around because there's a bonus feature. So there's going to be a bonus feature uh, on the sermon next week. So that's something that you can look forward to. The title of today's sermon is The Risen Way of Obedience in Matthew 7, starting in verse 12. And today's sermon is about spiritual life and spiritual death and where you might land. And so if you get the truth of the words of Jesus in this sermon, you will experience eternal life. But if you don't get the words of Jesus and the truth of his words in this sermon, you will experience destruction. Those are his words, not mine. And so I might be a little uh, serious today um, or strong in my language, uh, but, I, but I ask you, please don't be turned off by something that's strong or serious, but, but be very turned off by something that is false. And so I encourage you to read through Matthew 4, 5, 6, and 7, so that you confirm the content of this sermon. The content is critical, again, because, because of this content, it will dictate the kind of life that you live on earth, and also it helps determine where you will spend eternity. So let's pray together. Father, I have a simple, uh, simple prayer that that you, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, cause us to hear the truth in your word, Lord God, and whatever is not of you, uh, that you let it fall to the ground. But whatever is from you, Lord, I pray that by your grace you give us good, good soil that it might grow and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so just as a recap, we've covered a lot when we went through the risen way of the kingdom. Just some of the things that we touched on, we covered uh, poverty of spirit, uh, meaning our, recognizing our need, our poverty for Jesus. We talked about not just peacekeeping, but peacemaking. We touched on uh, being salt and light through our good deeds, through our works in the world around us. We touched on the topics of anger, destructive anger, and also lust. And then lastly, we talked about turning the other cheek, uh, which means 
discontinuing the violence or the evil shown to us. And then lastly, in the past few weeks, we've talked about prayer, uh, just prioritizing our time with Jesus as we follow him. And so we covered a lot. Now, Matthew 7, starting verse 12, is the end of the Sermon of the Mount. Sermon of the Mount, one of the, if not the most famous sermon in the world. And so how he closes, how Jesus closes the sermon is actually quite significant. And it's actually where we find pretty strong language from him, starting in verse 12. And so it reads, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Very good summary of the sermon. Enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And that's it, eternal life, if you read that in context. And only a few find it. And then skipping down to verse 21, it reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Ouch. Away from me, you evil doers. And then he continues, uh, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's where obedience is, is like a wise man who, puts, who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the, stream rose, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. Doesn't say it just had a leak. Some some roof shingles came out. Actually says that it fell with a great crash. Again, another picture of that destruction that Jesus is talking about. And so let's unpack this for a moment. Let's just start in verse 12. Verse 12, again, is a really good summary. So in everything, do to others what would you, you would have them do to you. Even Jesus says it. This sums up the law and the prophets. And then from there on in, uh, it, it, gets, it gets pretty serious. And what Jesus says is, he says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't really end the sermon with these words of encouragement like, Go, Johnny, you could do this. Go, Janie, I just preached a sermon on the mount. Go, you can do it. He doesn't end this sermon on the mount that way. How he ends it is he says, not everyone is going to make it. Not everyone will go to heaven. Only a few will experience eternal life. So the question I have is, if, if only a minority will find life, it seems like that means most people will experience destruction. 
And ultimately, that place of destruction is hell. And then it actually gets more sobering and more serious. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a second. I can understand if somebody who denies him doesn't go to heaven, but he says not even many who call me Lord, Lord will enter in. But I call him Lord. You call him Lord. What happens to us? And then he continues, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And so what what prophecy, driving out demons, and miracles have in common is that these are all spiritual gifts. They're gifts. And so what Jesus is saying is that even many who are spiritually gifted will not enter in. In fact, he says, many who are spiritually gifted will be rejected by him. You thinking what I'm thinking? My gosh, Jesus, this is such a downer. You preach this sermon on the mountain, this is how you end it? Didn't you go to preaching class, Lord? You're supposed to end on a high note. But in verse 21, he reveals those who enter says, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And what's his will? His will is what he's been preaching on that whole time, the Sermon on the Mount. That's the revealed will. And so those who enter the kingdom of heaven aren't those who hear the Sermon on the Mount, not those who read the Sermon on the Mount, not those who listen to Sermon on the Mount, not those who share on Facebook the Sermon on the Mount. It's those who obey. And so he says, not everyone will enter, but only those who obey. That means obedience is critical to the Father. It's a matter of life and death. And so if Jesus says, No one enters in except those who do the will of God, and the will of God is revealed in the sermon. It then begs an evaluation question. How have we then obeyed the Sermon on the Mount that's been preached the last three months? And so some of you guys might be thinking, well, well, what what kind of obedience? Like 51%? 75 percent, 85, 85 percent. Hear me. God is looking for full and perfect obedience. How, How do I know this? Jesus said it in the same sermon. In the same sermon, he said, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. When I shared this with my daughter, who's 10 year old, 10 years old, 11 years old, she goes to me, Papa, that can't be right. Nobody's perfect. And I said, you know what, little girl, you're right. This translation must be off. Let me check the other translations. 
So I checked other translations, the ESV, King James, New King James, NIRV, MSG. (laughs) There's no MSG version. And so I looked, and you know what they all said? Be perfect, Jesus said, as your Father is perfect. Now hold on a second. Come on. Red, as, as long as I'm trying, can I just sin a little, disobey a little bit and still enter in? There's actually f- a flaw in that kind of thinking. For me to think that I can disobey a little or sin a little bit shows that I believe in a God that has less than perfect standards. It shows a flawed understanding of the glory and the holiness of God. Yes, God is love. He is also holy, perfect, righteous, sinless, and requires the same kind of obedience from all who come near to him. How do I know this? All I need to do is look at this screen. He said it. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To believe otherwise, to believe otherwise really tarnishes, it cheapens the character of God. We make him out to be a God of my own making rather than who he really is. Because if that's who he really is, and some of you might be getting very uncomfortable at this point, even squirming, if that's who he really is, then I, and maybe many of us, are in deep, deep trouble. Because all I need to do is review All I need to do is review what we talked about in the past three months and see how I did. And maybe you did differently. It warrants that kind of evaluation question. If he says, only those who do the will of my Father and his will is revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, then let me just review how we did. We talked about peacemaking. Not just peacekeeping, but we received teaching on peacemaking. And so how, how have I resolved conflict, peacemaking, in the world or in the office or in the family around me? We, we receive teaching on being salt and light through our works so that we actually affect change in the world or in the people around us. How have we obeyed in that area? We talked about destructive anger and keeping it in check. Or when we talk, when Rich talked about lust, I was reminded not to objectify women or men. And so how have you and how have I been doing in resisting lust? And then we talked about turning the other cheek, not to continue the kind of violence shown to us or evil shown to us. And then we also talked about prayer. And so how have you or I needed to ask myself as I was preparing this, how did I prioritize my time in prayer? And you know, if I could just be honest for a moment, 
you know, I, I recall Rich said at the beginning of the series, he said, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount will reshape your life. And so I just had to think back to the three months. Um, has, has my life truly been reshaped? And if I were to be honest, um, I don't think it was reshaped that much by it. And so if the requirement of the kingdom of God is full obedience, and in just this series alone, I've missed the mark, then how then does one get into heaven? How does this happen? I'll tell you how the world answers that question. The world answers that question by by saying, if you try harder or hard enough, you'll get it. I'll tell you how religion answers that question. If you spend the rest of your life following rules to the best of your ability, you'll get in. Here's the problem with both of those scenarios. In both of those scenarios, you are your own savior. You are your own savior. And if you are your own savior here on earth, that means you don't need the help that comes from heaven. And if you don't need the help that comes from heaven, could I just be direct for a moment? If you don't need the help that comes from heaven, you won't go there. Isn't that logical? Here's a better way. Finally, some good news. Here's a better way. The Bible says you are not your own savior. You cannot be your own savior. You were never meant to be your own savior. And so God, in his love, he sends one. In fact, a savior has come. And that savior's name is Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. And so why do we need a savior? Because Jesus said, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. We need a Savior. Because when we face the truth of it, the Bible says that all have fallen short. No one deserves to go to heaven. All have been disobedient. And so can the disobedient go to heaven on their own? No way. But Jesus, our Savior, he makes a way. Amen. And for all that have been disobedient, Jesus makes a way. For all those of us in this room who have missed the mark, our Savior makes a way. For all those who have fallen short, Jesus makes a way. So I have good news for all the sinners in the room. Jesus makes a way for you to receive eternal life. He makes a way because he is the way. He is the way. But how? What does he do? How? And you actually have to read, read the chapter Matthew 4, which is the chapter before the Sermon on the Mount. His first call His first call is repent. Turn. Turn from your sin. Recognize that you can't save yourself. And so when we, when we recognize that we need him, when we repent, we turn from our sin, we become 
what Rich preached at the beginning, we become poor in spirit, recognizing our need for him. And when he sees that poverty of spirit, there's actually something called the great exchange that beautifully takes place. There's this great exchange when he sees this poverty of spirit. And what happens is that my sin, my record of disobedience, the punishment of that disobedience is then taken from me. It is transferred from me and placed on the cross of Jesus. So that Jesus, our Savior, is the one who suffers the destruction and suffers the punishment of our sin instead of me. And then recall what Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them. And so the Bible actually says that God forgives all sin. That's part of the great exchange, but it doesn't end there. There's something more. Because remember that perfect obedience that Jesus was looking for when he said, be perfect? Jesus was the one that actually lived that perfect life. He was the one who fully lived out the Sermon on the Mount. He was the one that had that perfect record of obedience. And in this great exchange, he places that record of obedience upon me. So that when God sees me, one who is repented, one who is poor in spirit, when God sees me, he actually sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. And then he proceeds to give me eternal life. Yes, we need a Savior. And so that's why the Bible says that the righteous requirements of the law, in Romans chapter 8, it says the righteous requirements of the law were fully met in us through Jesus Christ. And so let me just illustrate this this exchange um, another way. Do you guys know what this game is? Somebody call it out. Skee-ball. And how the game works is that you roll this ball, you try to get it into the center of that, that picture on the left, and the better you do, the more tickets you get, that second photo. So I went to this kid's party, um, and um, there were a bunch of kids playing um, in, this, in this game, because the more tickets you get, the more you can exchange those tickets um, for a prize. Um, it's a ripoff, if you ask me, those, re- those exchange, toy exchange. You get such little trinkets, it's not worth it. But these kids loved it. So I went to this kid's party, these kids were playing, and there was this one um, little girl who was playing skee-ball, and um, after a few minutes, um, I began to hear all this, like, um, all this shrieking and all this jumping up and down. And so I went as a responsible parent. I wanted to see what was uh, going on. And I saw there are all these tickets coming out. All these tickets were coming out. And it was toward the end of the party. And so what this little girl does is she recognized me as one of the parents. And so she took the tickets and then she gave them to me. And then she said, you know what, you go. You go and get a prize and then you give it to one of the kids. So I said, Okay, I could do that. So I took all these tickets. I brought it to that store clerk. And that's not what it looked like. I just want to give you an idea. Google images. Okay. 
just to give you an idea of what it might look like. And so I took all these, I took all these tickets and brought it to the clerk. And then this clerk looked at me and he was like, oh, he was impressed. You know why he's impressed? He saw the tickets, he saw the record of this girl's performance, and he saw it as if it was mine. And then he proceeds to give me a prize. And so by the same token, when we repent and we experience that poverty of spirit and receive Christ, Jesus looks at me and he sees that record of Jesus' obedience as if it was ours, as if it's mine. And then he proceeds to offer us eternal life. Praise God for the work of Jesus. You can clap. If you're like me, I think of that and I say, he, he gives me this record of a be- what, what kind of God is that? That's the, losing exchange, that's the losing end of that exchange. What kind of God does this? It's crazy and it's reckless. And that's why the songwriter of the song says it that way. He says, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Say it with me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God shown to us. Hallelujah. It's reckless. And you know why he does this? It's because he loves you. Why would a sinless man take the punishment of all humanity upon himself? Because he loves you. Oh, thank God for this good news. Let me just digress a little bit here. Uh, As I speak to people, uh, the people in this neighborhood, um, when I first started talking to them, I was so shocked that many of them have never even heard of Jesus in Queens. They don't even know what Christmas means. They don't even know what Easter is. The reason why I bring that up and not them not knowing who Jesus is, God doesn't just do this exchange for everyone. It is only those who come to Jesus because you're not your own savior. And so I meet folks from uh, Bhutan, from Tibet, Nepal, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and many of them, many of them, have never heard of this great exchange that Jesus offers us. And so just my prayer is that we begin to see ourselves truly as messengers of this good news. And so just going back to this here, well, what now? Okay, so Jesus' record of obedience is now placed on me. So does that mean that I still need to obey? Of course, you didn't think you'd get away that easy, right? Of course, but now, now I do obedience differently. You see, 
Now I do it differently because I no longer see obedience as a requirement that I need to fulfill because Jesus fulfilled that requirement. And so what happens is that now obedience is a response to that reckless love of God. Obedience is now the fruit that my life manifests. It is now a response to the work of Jesus on the cross. It becomes part of my worship. It becomes part of my devotion unto him because of what he did for me. And so here's another way of putting it. I don't earn the love of God by obeying. I can't. I am loved by God through Jesus, and therefore I obey. I'm loved by God, and therefore I obey. And so let me just explain how this played out uh, personally in me. Uh, this truth hit me um, quite wonderfully when I was in college. I recognized that um, if somebody asked me, Red, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Um, I would tell them, um, I think so. I didn't do any hard drugs. I did my homework. I obeyed my parents. But you know what that answer shows? It shows that I'm my own savior. And so the truth, of, the truth that I'm disobedient, I missed the mark, I'm fallen, hit me to the point where I needed that Savior. And so I recognized that the record of Jesus' perfect obedience is now on me when I received him. But then, talking about obedience as fruit, I, I wasn't seeing the kind of fruitful obedience that I wanted to see as part of my response to him. And to be honest, I hated the Sermon on the Mount. Especially the one that says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Why did I hate that? Because so many of my relatives committed adultery, and I didn't want to do what they did. But then this Sermon on the Mount was telling me that I was just like them. I hated that Sermon on the Mount. And so if you're, if you're like me, maybe not in the area of, of sexual addiction, but maybe you're caught in obedience as well. Like you're, you're a follower of Jesus. You've received him. You've repented. And yet there's something lacking in your obedience as fruit or your obedience as a response to him. I have very good news for you. And it's in Matthew chapter 7. Because in Matthew chapter 7, he gives a promise for those who need this kind of help to obey. And remember, remember that verse on the bottom of the screen there. In, in verse 12, he says, So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. Again, summary of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a call to, to obedience. But the verses, actually, the verses before that show a promise that serves to fuel your obedience. And so if you look, if you look at there at the top of the screen, it says, ask for what? You ask for help. You ask for his assistance. You ask for his comfort. You ask for his power. You ask for his anointing to be able to obey. And it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. And here's the promise for every single person in this room. He says, for everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks him, finds him. And to the one who knocks, this door will be opened unto you. That's a promise 
to you. And then it gets better. He says, if you then, though you who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who asked him? And so what are those good gifts? Those gifts are all those instances he responded to your asking. All those instances he will respond to your seeking. All those instances he will respond to you. So that, so that, verse 12, he gives this help so that in everything you are able to do to others as you would have them do to you. It's in the context of obedience that he says, ask, seek, and knock. Why? We can't do this on our own. He recognizes that we can't live that life of obedience on our own, and that's why he promises, he says, You ask, and I will answer. You seek, and you will find. You knock on my door, and the door will be opened unto you. And so, just going back to my own story, I did that. I did that. I was desperate for him. I saw it. You know one of the things I was most uh, fearful of? I didn't want to be alone. I didn't want to be alone, especially with the Internet, because I knew what I would do. I knew that I would sin. And so I recognized that I was saved, but there was just lacking this obedience as fruit and response. And so I asked and I kept on asking. I sought and I kept on seeking. And I knocked and I kept on knocking. And he responded. He responded through the people around me. He responded through the filling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He responded because it's a promise that he will respond to you. And so now, whenever I'm home alone, I am amazed. I am amazed at how temptation no longer grips me how it did. I can read the Sermon on the Mount freely. Why? Because I asked and I received, I sought, and he responded, and I kept on knocking and opened, he opened this door of victorious, freedom-filled obedience unto him that is available for every single person in this room. And so as we move into um, communion, let me invite the worship team up and also those serving communion. In the end of uh, chapter 7, Matthew quotes Jesus, where Jesus says, if you want to build your house upon a rock, how many of you want to build your house upon a rock versus sand? Building your house upon a rock is good. He says, if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you're building your house on a rock. And so when we take communion, we put his words into practice. We put his words into practice when he says, do this in remembrance of me, your Savior, who broke, whose body broke, and whose blood shed for you. And so you can put that prayer of confession up. When you come up, the ushers will lead you. Uh, You can take the piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and please hold on to it as you go back to your seat so we can partake together. I really like this prayer of confession as we move into communion. Why? Because it's a recognition 
of our poverty in spirit. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own faults in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in the newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Oh, that's so good, isn't it? The gospel, the good news. My disobedience on him, his perfect record of obedience on me. If you don't think that's a good deal, and we say that it's free, but it did have a cost. And it was the body broken and his blood shed for us. And so why we do communion? We do it remembering him. And we proclaim his death until his coming. And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he took the cup and he broke the bread and he gave thanks and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Let's respond in applause to him. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Almighty God. Hallelujah. We are forgiven and freed. Thank you, Lord God, for counting us worthy to enter into your presence. Thank you, Lord God, for the work of your Son. For this we are eternally grateful. May we respond in full, fruitful obedience unto you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so how do you respond this, this afternoon? I just want to make a call to two groups of folks. One is, if I, were to ask, if I were to ask you and ask you, do you think you'll go to heaven and why? If you respond and say, you know what? I think I've been good. Again, it shows that you're your own savior. You haven't trusted in the work of Jesus. You haven't taken part in that great exchange. And so as the prayer team comes up here to my left, after this, when we give the benediction, you come up if you've never repented, turned from your sin, and if you've never received Christ as savior. And then the second group of folks, you know, if, you're, if you feel like you're caught if you feel like you're caught in disobedience and you need the help of Jesus Christ, you come and you ask and you keep on seeking and you keep on knocking and you respond. And so would you just hold your hands as a way of receiving. Put it in a posture of receiving from Jesus as I just proclaim and speak a blessing over you. Holy God, hear us, Lord. 
And so may God bless you. And may God keep you. And may he cause his face, his beautiful face, to shine upon you. And may he be gracious unto each and every one of you now. And may he fill you with his peace and with his power and with his anointing. That you may go in fruitful obedience as a response in worship to him. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, everyone.